0: with me this morning, we're going to be sharing out of the book of Hosea, which in your pew Bibles is on page 759. Hosea, which you'll find in the pew Bibles on page 759. This is a good word as we prepare to come to the table this morning and feast together with each other and with the Lord. It is a gracious and wonderful reminder of something majestic about God. Something unique and surprising and stunning about Him. And so we can gladly come to it. Let me preface this with the Word. Let me just put it in general terms. Because Hosea is an odd place to jump in the Scripture. But here, here it is. The Bible, written over a course of a couple thousand years by numerous authors inspired by God, wrote about all sorts of things and wrote in all sorts of ways. Poetry, wisdom, stories, history. But the unique thing about Scripture is that when you sort of boil it down and strain it through a filter, the good extract left gives you a sense that there is something phenomenally unifying about it. And it's this it is about God. The Bible is about God. That should ease our confusion. But because it is about God and because it's more than three pages, it is about God and how He relates to people. And in order to do that, the writers of Scripture led by God used all sorts of images and metaphors to help us understand. Calvin called those lisps. He said God lisped in other words, it was a way God could use things we might understand, for if He were to speak in His own way, in His own language, it would be far beyond our ability to grasp. So here we find God in the Scriptures using all sorts of ways to communicate it. You're familiar with Him: Father, shepherd, king, bread, water, vine, farmer. We get those images. We understand that's saying something about God and something about the way God relates to His people. Something beautiful that we can grab onto. Well, Hosea, along with many parts of Scripture, has a very unique way of picturing God. He's pictured as a groom. And not just any groom, any bridegroom. He's a bridegroom that is tending to a faithless wife. If you will, as you see in the title, God is in many ways presented throughout Scripture as this kind of relentless or restless romantic. You probably don't think of God that way as being romantic, but there's language all over the Scripture that communicates God thinks of Himself as a husband to His people, His bride. In Hosea chapter nine, just to convince you of this, He says this about His people, people of old. And you too. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found them. Has someone ever said that over you? (laughs) That's poetry. That's love poetry. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found you where it's parched and dry. I found this beautiful, succulent fruit and I plucked it. Like the first fruit on a fig tree, I saw you. It's a beautiful imagery of the way God thinks of His people. When we get to Hosea, though, the romance has begun to sour. We find out that the people of God are—they're they're kind of like, in my experience, that girl in high school who, when it came time for dance season, was incredibly kind to you and somehow communicated that she liked you. And so you asked her to the dance. You were amazed she would be interested. You go to the dance, but the week after, no more. She's through with you. She used you for your purpose. And then she tossed you aside. Hosea depicts God's people like that. He's in love with them. He's rescued them and He's tended to them and cared for them. And then when the good stuff is over, when life carries on, they drop Him like a bad habit. Chapter 1, verse 2 of Hosea. He says this, In lament, My people, the ones I love, have committed the vilest adultery." There's that marriage language. "...departing from me." It's very personal to God. Now, Hosea is called in something like a marital counselor. God calls Hosea to be a counselor of sorts between He and His people. And the way God wants Hosea to experience what he feels is he actually makes the prophet go and marry a wife he calls of harlotry. Go and marry the wife who is in relationship with every other man in the city. That's what it's like for me. Chapter 4, verse 7, he says it this way. They've exchanged something glorious for something disgraceful. Chapter 4.12, he says, My people, My bride, are led by a spirit of prostitution. Very strong language. Beth-el, which means in Hebrew, the house of God has become Beth-aven, the house of wickedness. God laments that His people have taken His good love and have simply tossed it aside to follow after their own way. And then the most frightening judgment that could ever be spoken is given in chapter 8, verse 7. It says this, They sow wind and they reap the whirlwind. That is a frightening statement. The idea that my people are grasping after wind. How many of you have caught wind before? It's impossible. (laughs) Except if you use an instrument like a sail. But that's the imagery. They're, They're groping. They're reaching. They had me. They left me. And now there's nothing. And so they're struggling to do that. Here's the question. Here's where we come. Knowing that about His people knowing what they fully deserve, what they have begged Him to do, which is to wipe them out, how will He respond? How will that God respond to the way His people have responded to Him? Well, chapter 14, verse 1. Here's the final word. Return. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. And no more will we say, our God, to what our hands have made. And then this little miracle In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy, God says. I will love them freely, for My anger has turned from them. I will be like dew to Israel. And He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath My shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. And then there's a postscript, a little last word. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look for you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From Me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. God reveals in Hosea, that His beloved, that He describes as a faithless adulteress, that His response to them is like a restless and relentless romantic. God is depicted in those terms. What kind of groom am I? Restless and in love. Now, if that's true, And if that's what Hosea is essentially communicating about the character of God, that he calls back even his faithless people, what can we say about that for us? So let's live on this premise, okay? Because, or if, God is that restless romantic, what does that mean for us? Well, here we go. Because God is our restless romantic, we can joyfully return To Him. Or let me use other language. We can joyfully return home. Yahweh's response. The covenant God's response. The almighty, awe-inspiring, holy God's response to the reality that His people wander from Him is return. A command. Follows it up with another. Return. Return. Now he's honest, you must see that in verse 1. He says, "Return, O Israel, all the way to Yahweh your God." Nothing is left back. You must come all the way back. And like one who loves, he's honest. It's not the typical speech between a couple breaking up, is it? The typical speech between a couple breaking up is where you let the person off the hook and say, "It's not it's not you, it's me." You know that speech. It's not you, it's me. But God here says, no, it's you. It is you. I want to be bluntly honest that it is you. However, don't miss the thrust. Return. Come back. To summarize Hosea and to summarize all of the prophets, if you've ever had trouble understanding them, it is a picture again and again and again of a faithful God and how that faithful God responds to His faithless people who are so wandering. And what is the impact of that? What is the purpose of being that kind of stunning God? It is to amaze you and me. It is to stun us. It is to create within us an emotion of conflict because it's not the way it's supposed to be. If you do this and you deserve this, then by golly, that's what you should get. And the people know that. But as Paul reminds us in Romans, and what is so unique to the Gospel of Jesus Christ is that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It crushes even as it builds up. Kindness. I'm going to use a family word here for a moment. The family word is a doctrine that's being taught here. It's called repentance. He's calling them to repent. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a word that everybody in our culture would be familiar with, and I'm not sure what your experience is with that. Let me tell you mine. When I hear the word repent, my mind goes back to me growing up in Brookhaven, Mississippi, getting on Highway 51 and driving to, through Bogachitta, Mississippi. Do you know where that is? Bogachitta to Macomb, Mississippi. And along the road, someone has graciously placed signs along the highway that you go and you see them all over the place. And they're usually Bible verses and they're usually frightening. It's the sort of thing you don't want to read like, God will find you out. (laughs) Nothing escapes His attention He's coming soon. I've even seen some like those church signs that say things like, you know, on the flight to eternity, where will you spend? Uh, where will you, what seat will you have? Smoking or non-smoking? Uh, those kind of things. But inevitably, there's always one sign that has one word on it it says, Repent! <laughs> that baby is going to back up what I'm about to say. The sign always says repent and inevitably in that sign are evidences that people have taken shotguns and they have shot holes into that sign. (laughs) You can always see bullet holes in these signs where it said repent because for most people, repent brings up some bad memory it brings to their mind perhaps the idea of the preacher they grew up with. Bony fingered and red-faced that stands over them and looks at them in the eyes and says, repent! By which he really means behave. And so repentance takes upon it this less than positive emotion for most of us. As a result of that, As a result of a negative impression of what repentance is, most people either never come to the Lord or even worse, they just come near the Lord. That is, they become churchy. Biblical repentance, however, is not that. Let me say that again. Biblical repentance is not that. It is life-giving. It is thirst quenching. It is taste bud popping. It is all satisfying because behind the call to repentance is this restless, romantic who is out for you. And that kind of context changes everything about the way we understand it. Let me put it in human terms. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I have the experience of having to go through an intervention, not for me, but for my father. 1994, my only brother was killed in a car accident. And in the aftermath from that, my parents who had such a solid marriage began very naturally in the wake of such a earth-shattering tragedy to begin to falter. 38 years of marriage begins to turn into a cold and distant relationship. Our family, which once ate at a table, now finds themselves in separate rooms as they eat just to get away from one another. We were depressed. We were hurt. We were crushed. That kind of pain never, ever, ever goes away. My father responded to that in his deep search for some kind of joy and some kind of happiness, and he turned to what we could call the idol of escape. And his particular manifestation of that kind of worship happened to be, ironically, gambling. And my father worked himself into a debt that when he finally died a year later, after that of a broken heart, left us with a huge sum of money and pain to deal with. My mother and I didn't know what to do. We had a father who was captivated. Tunnel vision, he called it. He would come home and absolutely hate himself. He'd throw wads of money on the table and say, you can have it, I don't want it. There was something else behind it, something else driving him to it. It was a painful thing to watch. In the process, my mother and I decided, we need to intervene. We need to call someone that can help into this matter. And they said, you've got to confront That's not easy. It is not easy. The person being confronted is not exactly joyful to receive your help. And in the process of that, my father used to wonder look, I'm just, this is my problem, not yours. Why are you and your mother going through such trouble for this? It's you, Dad. It's for you. We don't care about your gambling. We care about you. We have a stake in this and we're willing to get messy with this because it's, it's you we're after. Now, let me relate that back to our passage. That's how God views repentance. If you don't see that God is first and foremost active in our repentance because He is a pursuing and He is going to be compassionate and He's going to be confrontational, Because He wants, guess what? You. That's what He's after. If we think of repentance primarily as our activity, something we must do, we'll only come near, but never to, or we'll always run. So here, friends, is the good word. If God is that restless romantic, we absolutely can joyfully return. The prodigal son is the great illustration. The father who should beat his child embraces him. Point two. If God is this restless romantic, then we can come clean without fear. It's interesting that in this passage, God actually tells His people what they can say. Did that strike you in verse 2? Take with you words and return to the Lord. That's a a staggering thing to think. Why would God say here, take words with you? Well, I thought I would have something else. No, no, take words. Why? I think here's why. When you wander from God, something happens in you. You end up becoming the thing you're wandering after. Did you know that? That's the greatest judgment Scripture says is possible for the human being. If you... Worship something that is exactly what you will get. And the emptiness created in that, of course, sometimes too late, is more than shattering. And in the Scriptures, God's people were worshiping idols. Wooden creations that they had fashioned themselves, that they bowed down to. And like their idols, they had no ears to hear, no eyes to see, and no mouths to speak. They just existed. You follow me. That's what idol is. In that case, there are really two major dangers. The first one, the first one, is what you could call a false repentance. The reason God says take words with you is because there is a danger when you are in that state of self-delusion that it's not that bad or I'm not that far or I'm not that needy that I won't know what to say. I will repent that it will be on my terms. I'll say the magic words or I'll say the things I think God wants to hear, but I will not be forthright and honest you ever seen two children playing in a room with toys? There are toys, and then there are toys. Child A sees a toy he wants. He goes and grabs it. Child B wants that toy and they begin to tussle over it. Suddenly, child A sees a better toy in the room and says, "Oh, you can have it." How kind. How generous, right? How thoughtful and giving and gen- No. The child wants something else. So he throws a bone sometimes we can do that with God we'll skirt around the realities of what we really are and what we really need and who he really is secondly maybe even more frightening is that another danger is that of hopelessness sometimes with God we feel like there is there there must be a, an edge to the cliff and there's There's only so far we can go, and if we keep pushing it, there's a point where we go off the cliff. There's no getting back. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I've hurt too many. There's no way that I could ever be back. So what do we do? Well, like a couple that's going through great problems, you sit down in the room, you know you have problems, and you say, well, let's talk. What's your response? I've got nothing to say. I don't know what where do I begin? Where would I start? God graciously says, Take words with you. Here's the words, verse two Take away all iniquity. Iniquity. No need for self promotion in the face of God. By that I mean all of the excuses that we tend to make. It's just who I am. Or, it's harmless. I'm not hurting anyone. My favorite that I use in my home, well, I was... it's just hot, and so I got mad. With God, He says, take away all iniquity. It's iniquity. It's not excuses. I am, as one of my friends says, always on a public relations campaign. Oh, it's not, it's not iniquity. It's, it's just my temper. That's who I am. Wrong. Verse 2, he says, take away all iniquity. Not just iniquity, but all iniquity. In the face of God, all sin is catastrophe. All sin is a, a campaign to overthrow God and His rule. We don't think about it that way, but that's the way God's Word presents it. Verse 3, he says, We will not, if you're wondering what this is, Assyria shall not save us, verse 3. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, Our God, to the work of our hands. Lay aside your own false remedies. Stop saying to God that what really makes me somebody is what I have or what I do or the gifts I bring to the table or the comfort I need or the escape I myself have. Lay aside those remedies. Assyria will not save us. We're looking to power. We're looking to might. We're looking to wealth and strength to save our problem. No. It's Yahweh. That's the idea here. And then verse 3, I said there was this miracle passage. Admit it. You're an orphan. In you, the orphan finds mercy. How would an orphan feel? Hopeless. Abandoned. Afraid. Lost. Without the possibility of someone grabbing them up, there is a great dread. Dread. They're needy. They're frightened. That's where the Lord would find us. That's where our restless romantic would come in and say, Welcome back. There's an uh, illustration in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know if you've read those or seen the movie. But there's a character in there, sort of the main one in this third volume, called Eustace, and he's a brat. He's the kid you want to take on your your lap and you just want to wear out. Eustace. He knows it all. He's done everything you've done and better. He's Mr. One-Upman. Nothing you can say or do can outdo Eustace. And he is this just annoying figure for a reason. Lewis is showing us something about ourselves. And at one point, what is inside Eustace, Lewis uses the imagery of a dragon to show him Uh, by making his outside like his inside. And so Eustace goes to sleep in a cave and he wakes up feeling sort of strange. He goes down to the water and he looks in the reflection and there is a dragon. And he's frightened. And he keeps coming back and he moves his mouth and he notices that every time he moves his mouth, the dragon moves his mouth. A perfect mirror image. And then he realizes, it's me. I'm a dragon. So overwhelmed by this fear of, being a dragon, he begins to take the claws that he has as a dragon in his teeth and he begins to pull them off. They hurt, but he thinks he's finding relief and so he's getting those scales off of his body. Underneath are more scales. Finally, the hero Aslan, the Jesus figure, comes in and says, you're going to need to let me remove your scales. And so he has Eustace lie down the movie's very different, but he has Eustace lie down. And the first claw goes into his skin and Eustace says, the pain was so deep that I didn't think I could bear it. But in time, I began to see that it was actually relieving. Because even though it was painful, he was healing me. And it was a good sort of hurt. You know, like when you pull a scab. That's how he describes meeting the living God. Take words with you as in one sense this most glorious and gracious gift of God. Say these things. Admit these things. Confess. As you repent, return, confess. Finally, we can come to the Lord without fear, but finally, if God is this restless romantic, we can embrace His life-giving change. The last part of this passage in Hosea is one of the most poetic and beautiful. The imagery is meant to stun you. You're meant to think of the people of God as this dry and barren wasteland, and then all of a sudden, you have imageries of trees growing up. Flowers blossoming. Dew which saturates the dry ground to where it's moist and fertile and useful. That's what God is communicating to us. When you find yourself in the wilderness, God's telling His people, how can I motivate you in your return to Me? How can I promise you that it is going to be worthwhile? He promises here shalom, shalom, wholeness, completeness, peace. He uses botanical imagery as well, like lilies and trees, because They're substantial and beautiful, but it also takes time. They grow. There's fertile soil from which they spring forth. Verse 4, he says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for My anger has turned from them. It's not enough for God to say, I forgive you. God's program also includes healing. He's a God of restoration, not merely forgiveness. He wants to make you into something beautiful. Verse 5-7, to He says, I'm going to give you vitality. Look at all the like terms. Like the dew of Israel. Verse 5. You shall blossom like the lily. Verse 5. You shall be and take root like the trees of Lebanon. Those are the most glorious, wonderful cedar trees in the ancient world. You're to have this image of beauty, glory, unshakable life. What do you get when you return to God? You get God. What do you get when you come home and return to God? You get God. And because you get God, you get His program for your life which is like dew. To the dry ground like a lily blossoming. What allows us to change, what allows us to see and easily repent to the Lord God is to see those things about Him. What can free us from that which cripples us? It's to see that there's something more beautiful than that which is crippling us. Something trumps it Something's more beautiful. Something is more glorious. And that's what we have here. You'll notice that this passage ends in verse 9 rather strangely. All of a sudden, the writer goes into what looks like something from the Proverbs. It's wisdom literature. What is that? Well, here it is. Let me boil it down into language we understand. If I were to give you a Ferrari Testarossa, $350,000, sit it in your driveway and say, There is your car. And you never drive it. Of what use is it? Of what use is it? That's what he's communicating in this last verse. You have a Ferrari here. Drive it. Go into it. Get in it and try it out, and you will begin to see the majesty of the Lord God as he renews, revives, and frees you. That's the postscript on the book. And then it ends. There's a mystery here. The passage ends. Questions come to our mind. What's going to happen? Does this harlot bride come back? Is there a restitution in this marriage? How is it? Do the people again blossom like a lily? And do they become something like a tree in Lebanon? Lebanon? We have the great privilege of not only hearing about it, Today, but actually seeing it. It's called the Lord's Supper. And in a moment, they're going to pull off this cloth and you're going to see two things. Bread and wine or juice. (laughs) And what God is communicating in this is, there's my answer. There is the lily blossoming because something died to make it blossom. There's the dew upon the ground. There is how far I'm willing to go to say I guarantee these things return to Me. That's how far I'll go. And it's a stern and again another wise admonition. As you look at the bread which represents the body, either He is broken or you are broken the juice or wine which represents the blood, either his is spilled or yours is spilled. That's the great promise of the Gospel. And so we boldly come and we boldly embrace what the Lord God has provided to us through Jesus Christ. Let's go home. I don't mean to watch football. I mean the bigger home. Let's return. Let's see that our God is that kind of restless romantic. And we joyfully can come back. We can just be so forthcoming with him. And if we don't know what to say, he tells us. And let's embrace that he is making us into something glorious and beautiful and blossoming. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we close our time in Your Word, we do pray that, Lord, the truth about You being relentless would in no way, Lord, diminish the truth of Your glory. Lord, if You were to appear in this room right now and speak, our eardrums would burst and we would fall to our face out of great fear. So what is it that gives us this confidence to say, Lord, this is who you are? Well, you showed us, didn't you? That at just the right time, you sent forth your son, born of a woman, <laughs> so that he might identify, what would suffer with us, and born under the law that he might perfectly and without complaint fulfill all that is required even of us. And as many as receive Him, to them He gave the right to become the sons of God. May this truth be bound upon us as we seek, Lord, Your do and Your bloom in our lives. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.